Hey, everybody. I've got a great interview for you today, and this time I am featuring a conversation with Eden Collinsworth on her fascinating book, What the Ermine Saw, The Extraordinary Journey of Leonardo da Vinci's Most Mysterious Portrait. This is an extraordinary work of narrative nonfiction that traces the remarkable history of Leonardo da Vinci's enigmatic portrait, The Woman with an Ermine, following it from its original creation, including the fascinating story of its subject, Cecilia Gallerani, and on to its mysterious disappearance for 250 years, after which it emerged in the hands of an aristocratic Polish family. Now on display in Krakow, the painting was exiled in Paris and kept hidden from the Nazis by a brave housekeeper. These defining moments in history comprise a portrait of Europe's past as vivid and complex as the painting itself. What the Ermine saw pulls the curtain back on this fascinating history behind this astonishing portrait. Eden Collinsworth is a former media executive and a business consultant who is the author of three previous books, including Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business, which was published in 2017. She lives in London, and she joined me via Zoom for our conversation today. Enjoy. Eden Collinsworth, thank you so much for being on Art Curious today. It's my pleasure. I look forward to for our to our chat. Thank you so much. When I typically have been doing these interviews for these episodes of Art Curious, I most of the time I'm speaking with art historians or at least historians in general who work with a lot of art. So it was a really wonderful and fascinating surprise when I was reading your biographical details to note that you really have run the gamut between being a media executive, you run a, or have run a global think tank, you've had a best-selling book about China. So what is your background in general? And when it comes to art, what is your relationship? with it. Oh, God. It's difficult to describe my background without making it sound as though I have an attention span problem. <laughs> no. <laughs> I seem to have done things in 10-year tranches in terms of a career. And I must say that I'm not entirely sure I could have done it that way these days. In other words, it was a different time where one could move from career to career because there were far more opportunities to do that. But I, to make a very long, circuitous story as short as possible, I moved to New York from university wanting to be a painter, but I had to earn a living and I couldn't type, which was what was required to be anyone's assistant. Try as I might, I just couldn't get up to 30 words a minute, which I gather was the kind of benchmark. <laughs> and so I registered, desperate for an income, I registered with something ironically called Career Blazers, which sent young people out who could not type to various jobs on a temporary basis that didn't require anything other than sitting and answering phones. And the first job was to be a, to spell the receptionist at Doubledan Company on the executive floor for two, the two weeks she had gone on vacation. And in ways that I promise you, this is not false modesty because I, I can't possibly explain it in any kind of logical terms. But some nine years later, I was running a book publishing company called Arbor House. And it was relatively small, but very lively and a great adventure. And it was then purchased by the Hearst Corporation. And I left to start a magazine in Los Angeles called Buzz Magazine, which I ran for 10 years, bringing with me many of the relationships I had with the authors with whom I worked. So it was, it was a wonderful continuation of that. 
Um, and I sold the magazine to uh, Fairchild. And at that point, the chairman of Hearst um, invited me back and uh, offered a corporate role that he created that allowed me to move across all the divisions. And Hearst was a very diversified media company. So there were newspapers and magazines and syndication and so on and so forth. And I did that for 10 years. And then in a way that was very uh, unexpected, I was approached to become the chief of staff of a global think tank. And even though this was certainly not my area of expertise, I was known to be a competent manager. And knowing that I would never have this opportunity again, I took the position and it moved me around the globe because the... um, the offices were in five different international time zones. It was wonderfully interesting. I had no private life to speak of, and I lived 10 days in New York, 10 days in Brussels, and then I traveled the other 10 days to the various offices. So I did that for six years. While I was at Hearst, I wrote a novel called It Might Have Been What He Said. It was very well reviewed, so I felt confident I could write. And so I, when I left the think tank, I always had this idea that the Chinese business community especially would be interested in Western, a book on Western business practices. So I moved to Beijing and coordinated with a Chinese publisher and wrote um, a book on that particular subject. It was censored, and so I stayed in Beijing for the year that the government withheld it until eventually they released it. And there, during the course of that period of time, I took on a consulting position with a rather mysterious billionaire in Guangzhou. And it was so wacky, the whole experience, that when I then left China at the end of the year when the book was published, and I moved to London, which is where I'm speaking to you from, I I wrote a book, a kind of a, a, a memoir of that year called I Stand Corrected. And after that book, I wrote a book on modern morality. And now this current book, was written during COVID lockdown, which was a fairly existential (laughs) experience. (laughs) And it brought its own challenges because as you have rightly pointed out, I'm not an art historian, I'm not an art expert, but I had seen this painting, this remarkable Leonardo da Vinci portrait in Krakow, Poland. And I was quite interested in how it got there. It was so compelling that when I came back, this was about three years ago, I started to look into its background and realized that you couldn't make it up in fiction. It was staggering. And I thought that I would write the history of the portrait by way of its various owners over the period, over its period of some 530 years. And so that that is a very long-winded answer to your <laughs> question when I promised I'd make it as short as possible. No, but I love it. And also, it is so fascinating to learn about your background. And then I always love to hear how people come up with the ideas. And so learning about how you first became interested in writing about Lady with an Ermine, I think that's incredibly important. When you were able to see it in Poland, tell me a little bit about that encounter. Did you know much about this work of art before visiting the museum in Krakow? Yeah, no, I certainly knew of the picture because it's it's so it's so compelling. It's difficult to forget it once you've seen it, even in a book, frankly. And so I was in Krakow with a group of a relatively small group of people from the National Gallery here in London. And 
we had the great privilege of being allowed into this museum, which is a national museum, after business hours when the museum was closed. And there weren't many of us, and we were allowed to wander around in an unsupervised way. And I literally just, I saw this darkened room, which was intriguing, but there was a light on. And I wandered into it, and there was this, in this one small darkened room, with the spotlight on it was this small portrait. And there were there was, by the way, it was guarded, so it wasn't as though it was a kind of casual encounter. And it, it would just it was so dramatically arresting that for such a small painting as well, it ha- it has a life of its own. And so I was this is what prompted me to to look into it. I was didn't know who the young girl was, who was the subject of the portrait. Obviously, I was aware that it was a Leonardo painting, but I didn't know how it got to Krakow and when he painted it and under what circumstances. And so that's what prompted me to begin to snoop around. And when I, it didn't take me long to realize that it, it came with this remarkable history, 230 years of which were unknown, and knowing and aware, very much aware of the fact that I am not an art expert or a historian, art historian. I interviewed as many as possible in both categories. I then found my way to two excellent researchers, one in Milan and the other in Poland, who would help me translate um, in those languages periodicals that I wouldn't have access to. And they, too, were locked down. This was uh, obviously not part of anybody's plan, but they were able to send me translated the selection from various books and articles they would excerpt and translate and that were germane and then email them to me. And for that, I remain incredibly grateful because I could not have done that without that, the information that was sent to me. Tell me a little bit about that gap, because I know you're talking about the history of the work of art. And really, that's one of the things that I think is most exciting to me about art history is because it's this uh, this single work of art, but it has so many incredible stories that are attached to it. So you're yeah. talking about trying to track down that history. I love the way that you're able to dig it in through the people. So obviously, we think about Leonardo and his mm-hmm. shadow is so vast that he casts over art history. Uh, But I think some people sometimes forget that his artwork output wasn't vast at all. I think he only really created, what, about a little more than a dozen paintings? And yes, yes, he was he had a with any other artist, he would not his career would have never gotten off the ground, frankly, but he was a unique genius. Yes. And in fact, it was interesting for me because he was 30 at the time he convinced Ludvico Sforza, who was at the time the regent of Milan, to employ him or invite him into his court as a court painter. But in the letter that he wrote to Ludvico, Leonardo laid out in a very confident way what he could offer. And it was that he could invent, frankly, he could invent war machinery, he could build bridges, he could Uh, actually create party events, for want of a better description. He could work in, he was a sculptor, he could work in marble and any number of other materials. And almost as a throwaway, the last sentence of this letter is, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's basically, oh, and by the way, I can also paint. (laughs) I know. And so he painted 
no more than 15 pictures, four of which were of portraits of women. And he was allowed to, he was left to his own devices, which suited him very well. And you can see during the course of that period of time from his notebooks, how wide a net he cast. But the first portrait that, uh, the first picture that he was, that Lovicchio commissioned was that of his uh, Lovicchio's young mistress. Her name was Cecilia Gararina. She was very young, uh, certainly in, in modern terms. She was perhaps too young, but she was all of 12 or 13. But keep in mind that girls were from good families were all, often used negotiating chips for in diplomatic marriages. And they were actually promised at the age of two and three, there was a marital contract drawn up and they would marry at the age of 12, between 12 and 15. And so this young girl was completely extraordinary, by the way. It's difficult to find, as is often the case, sadly, these remarkable women at the best become footnotes unless they marry, they're attached to a marriage. She was a mistress. And still, regardless of her position in the court, she was she was spoke languages, she wrote music, she wrote poetry, she could debate in Latin. She was the first to launch a salons where she would invite mathematicians and poets and military men, philosophers to discuss various issues. And so she was completely singular in terms of who made a, a, a great impression, but then history never allowed a situation where one could actually read about her. And she was marginalized once he, Lubicchio, had no choice but to marry the woman to whom he was betrothed, who was also 15 at the time they were married. And that young woman was, understandably, was extremely irked when she showed up at the Castilla and found the mistress an illegitimate son and this portrait mm. still in the castle. And Cecilia was was shown the door and she left with the portrait. And beyond that, it that was the then the preceding 230 years. The art experts have a very diplomatic way of phrasing it. They say that it was lost to view. Oh, I love that. So, I know it's just and and also with all due respect, because I have nothing but respect for the most, especially the art experts and the the curators and the hist- art historians I met and who were kind enough to give me their time and advice. The fact is that they are very they are very squeamish about volunteering even speculation in a situation where there's simply no provenance. So they, there was just there's as long as they understand how to pick up the thread, nobody's really con- going to pursue these missing years because they nobody knows. And so uh, understandably, the art experts are not going to take a position in any capacity. So I was left to to wander around on my own, and and I do as best I could. I speculate based on the information I collected, but the next recorded owner was also a remarkable woman who was a hugely unconventional Polish princess, and her son purchased this painting for her, and she was the first in Europe to launch a 
museum for the public. It was on the family estate, but it was open to the public. And there, this is why and how the the painting, presumably coming from Italy, landed in 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 Krakow, Poland. It then went into hiding. What is extraordinary is that. It survived at all because it the, it, it survived the the uh, Russian invasion, the November uprising. It was exiled to to Paris, where it was in in the Hotel Lambert on the Ile Saint Louis for thirty years. It then came back and it went into hiding yet again um, during the First World War. It was then bricked up and hidden yet again during um, the Second World War before it, the Gestapo uh, had been instructed by Hitler to locate it because it was on his wish list, so to speak. And so, you know, it, the fact that it's it is with us today still is quite remarkable. I completely agree with that. I remember seeing, I believe there's pictures of some of the monuments men, some allied soldiers who are holding her after they were able to declare that art was safe again after the war. Yes, yes, so yes. it is amazing. It's- it is what happened was it was you know the monument more than most what what transpired with Rose Vallant, who was instrumental in at her at risking her life at compiling a very thorough journal of what was being looted and funneled through Paris and this picture didn't end up in Paris. In fact, it ended up with Hans Frank, who was Hitler's personal lawyer who then was assigned to become the attorney general of Poland he oversaw the not only the 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 war camps and the work camps but also the transport system that brought the Jews to their death there and he was I refer to him as a coagulation of human evil but he considered himself a very civilized man who appreciated art, and more than anything, he wanted this picture to hang above his desk, and Hitler loaned it to him. So uh, when the Allies then closed in on him at the end of the war, he fled the, his office compound in a, in a in Valvel Castle, which is in the middle of Krakow, and he took with him this small picture. And when they f- tracked him down in his, at his Bavarian country house, they found him in one of the back rooms. And the only other thing in the room was this picture. That's amazing. I know. And the picture then was warehoused because at the time, basically what the allies made clear was that they would house whatever they could find and protect it. But it was really up to the nations, the individual nations and their governments to retrieve um, the artwork and the Poles sent a representative, and that's the wonderful photograph of them at the train station in Krakow holding the picture. This was also just before Stalin was given in ways that a lot of people don't appreciate. Had uh, w- was fundamentally given Poland in in the last chapter of the negotiation in in after the war. Um, Roosevelt basically promised that he would not interfere if Stalin moved into and, and took Poland communist. And so uh, considering that it was thought of as, as a bourgeois item, it was then warehoused yet again until the end of the Cold War. It's been in the dark almost as long as it's been in the light. And 
as I said, it's just remarkable that it's with us still today. Absolutely. Now, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite things is being able to parse out the life of a work of art because a picture is worth a thousand words and this one can speak just a book worth, obviously. And it's fascinating. I knew only really her name. I knew that her name was Cecilia and I knew that this was a portrait that was based in and around Milan and its creation. But I love how you've been able to take it up through really this present moment. And especially that post-war period, I really didn't know a lot of that. So this is a history that's really surprising, very interesting. What was your favorite part of working on this book? Did you have one piece of information that was the most surprising discovery that you made? No, I can't claim to have found something that nobody else knew about. But I think I was, as a book publisher and editor myself, I am not unaware of the fact that no one is obliged, no reader is obliged to turn the page. That's a good point. What I I wanted to be able to do was to convey this remarkable story. Obviously, I could not gloss over the history because the history was its, it was the skeleton, so to speak, uh, of the story. So I had to convey historical information to the reader without it seeming very dry and academic. And I thought I had a better chance of this if I if I allowed the owners of the picture to step forward with their own stories in a kind of chronological way. what To answer your question, what surprised me, and I was unaware of this until I was in the middle of writing the book and having done the research I did, was the number of women who either protected it or saved it entirely from destruction. Yes. And that that is that was a surprise to me. On the other hand, I suppose it's logical because the men were busy with the risk of sounding rather judgmental. Hard on the other sex. The men were busy warring and destroying and burning down and looting. And it was the these remarkable women who were very brave, by the way, one of whom was is not known. And I really had to hunt for a photograph of her. She was a housemaid in one in the in, in one of the estates in which in Poland, in which the picture had been bricked up. It was actually bricked up in a wall, in the wall of an outbuilding. And in the early days of the invasion of Poland during the Second World War, Poland was being invaded by Germans and the Russians. And and so it was just made very clear to anybody living there that their life was in danger. And most of this village fled and hid in the woods. And this woman stayed behind, risked her own life. The painting had been pulled out at one point. We don't know whether it was the Russians or the first wave of the Germans who just didn't want to, who were unaware of what it was. And there was a boot mark on it, believe it or not. Oh, gosh. I know. It just breaks your heart. And she was remarkably heroic. She stayed behind. She sewed together two pillowcases that would protect it. She cleaned as best she could the bootmark off it. And then she hit it again. And so there are these, those kind of stories are, one cannot help but be moved by, not only surprised, but also profoundly moved by it. 
I completely agree. And I thank you so much for sharing this story because, again, it is such a compelling read. It's incredible history. And I love how much you were able to bring to life not only Cecilia herself, but all of these important and fascinating people who have interacted with her. We are digging deeper into the vast history of Lady with an Ermine and Leonardo da Vinci and Eden Collinsworth herself right after a quick break from today's sponsors. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I try to do whatever I can to make sure that I keep my car running perfectly, I get its oil changed, I get the tires rotated, and I generally just take good care of it. Now, we also try to do the same for our bodies, with exercising and eating right, trying to get enough sleep and more. But just as important is doing so for your mind, because how we care for our mind affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest just as much time and care into keeping our brains healthy. There are plenty of ways to support your brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. And there is also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I use BetterHelp to connect with a therapist in less than 24 hours, and I loved being able to talk to them via phone or chat without waiting, traveling, or sitting awkwardly in an office. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy, and like me, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So I recommend you give it a try. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. That's betterhelp.com slash artcurious. What is on your agenda now? What is your next project? It's interesting. I my The books that I write are... The subjects are subjects that I myself am trying to sort through. So whether it's modern morality, whether it's my, I was trying to better understand my, the year I was in China, whether it's the this picture that was so compelling. It's always the case where I have come across something and to better understand it, I write about it in the hopes that I can also breathe bring the reader along on the same journey. And so they're discovering as I'm discovering. And apropos of that, I, during, I've come upon this information on this completely remarkable American woman who, by the name of Victoria Woodhill, and she's been written about before, but always through a feminist lens. She was a child clairvoyant after the America Civil War, Ooh. who was who was hugely very admirable, but also, frankly, not somebody who's easy to, because she was, and she's multidimensional. And she ended up in, because she was blackmailing men with whom she was sleeping, married men, the Vanderbilt family, because she zeroed in on the richest man in America, gave her $100,000 to leave the country, which is oh <laughs> about right. It was a lot of money. Yeah. And she, ended up, she ended up in London. And in a way that was just unbelievable here, this was in the late 1800s, she sued the British Museum for libel. The British Museum at the time housed the British Library. And she found, I don't know how, but she came across an article that was there that was, it was a reprint of the Chicago Tribune that described her exploits, which were not very ladylike, by the way. <laughs> I bet. And she sued them. And in a way, and she came and this was a woman who had no education, not one day of education. Was obviously completely brilliant. And to her credit, she was 
her agenda did include women's rights, but whether or not that was deliberate or she realized it was an advantage, because she was a professional, um, you know, provocateur. So at any rate, she is she's somebody I'm desperate to better understand. And so that is my next book, and it's due to the publisher in two years. So Amazing. I have now two years to research and write about Victoria. Woodhill. I cannot wait to learn about her more because she sounds completely amazing and fascinating creature. So yes, I want to get my hands on that in two years, hopefully. That would be amazing. I'm hoping I'll be upright by then. (laughs) I bet. It's such a process, the writing and research process. It is, but it's enjoyable too. I certainly am not complaining. No, I absolutely understand. It is hard work and enjoyable work at the same time. Yes, yes. Before we go and end our interview today, I was wondering if you would be open to a couple lightning round questions. Sure. I hope I'm clever enough to answer them. <laughs> Any answer is a good answer. No worries. Okay. okay. So first off, do you have a favorite artist? And if so, who is that person? Oh, my God. That is, I've now spent three years with Leonardo. So it, it would be disingenuous of me to say that he's not on the top of my list. So it would have to be Leonardo. Love it. If you had an art history bucket list, as much as I'm not a big fan of that term, but if you had one, what is on it that you haven't been able to see yet? Oh, do you mean see a a picture or a book to read? I would say a piece to see or a place to visit in person. Yes. I... What I'd like to do is to return, and it's going to be it's going to be impossible because of the circumstances. But I would very much like to return to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, oh. and I had that opportunity years ago. And I always had promised myself a return trip, but I don't know whether I that will happen within my lifetime. Certainly, absolutely, I know. I feel you on that one. Mm. What was your last favorite read in any genre? Oh, that's, I've just, I've spent the year, three years plowing through Leonardo books, but you know what I'm beginning to read, which I think is a riot, is to to gear up for my next project, is Anthony Trollope's mother uh, was another piece of work. And he, and she was dealing with a large family and a husband who couldn't earn a living, I gather. And she decided, this was also in the 1850s, to go to America. How wacky is that? Thinking that somehow she could earn some money and bring it back. And I don't know whether it was because there were others who who were on the lecture tour and so on and so forth, including Oscar Wilde. But she, what she did was she came back and instead she wrote a book, which is hysterically funny because <laughs> basically she brought her attitude with her, which was incredibly condescending. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she was right. If you cut through the condescension and, and her attitude, she had an, a gimbal eye. And so her observations about America, even then, were absolutely spot on. So I would recommend that. That, that was a surprise. That sounds amazing and very fun and insightful at the same time. Yeah. So to seal us off, what is your secret talent? Oh my God. I don't know whether that's very generous to for you to think that I've got talent. <laughs> Everyone that, has like one. I'm holding one back. But <laughs> let's see, I'm trying to think of oh, you know what? I don't know whether it's a talent, but I have it is a secret because it is it's not it's rather out of character. But during 
lockdown my I as a writer it's an isolating life and so you just go mad if you don't get out and take a walk or exercise or something and the lockdown here in London was the severest anywhere it was yes. really there was a period of four consecutive months where we were allowed only an hour out of our residence and I was left on my own and I've not seen by the way my son in three years because oh. He is in Hong Kong. Oh my he, gosh. Yeah. So it was, a, it, I just definitely hit the love, the upper reaches of existentialism. But the point is that finally, when my health club opened up, they still had closed the pool, but they offered me something called the what by class, which was just a riot. It's very male oriented. So secretly, I'm, I've, I'm enjoying that. It's very, it combines two things I didn't think I'd like at all. I still don't like technology and profuse sweating, but still it's been, but it's been a, but it's been a, it's been a godsend. I suppose that's a secret that's no longer a secret now. Amazing. Eden Collinsworth, thank you so much for being with me today to talk about what the ermine saw. I'm going to be sharing a link to the book in the podcast show notes today and also in our blog post that's associated with this. So hopefully our readers can grab copies if they are able and willing. And uh, thank you again for everything. Hopefully I can talk to you in the future about your next project. Yes, thank you for having me. I so enjoyed it. Take care of yourself. Thank you as well. Thank you for listening to this interview with Eden Collinsworth, author of What the Ermine Saw, The Extraordinary Journey of Leonardo da Vinci's Most Mysterious Portrait. As always in the show notes and the blog post today on artcuriouspodcast.com, you will find a link to purchase a copy of the book, both from Amazon and also from bookshop.org, if you are so inclined and you have the means to do so. Equally important, I'll say it once and I'll say it again. Please tell your friends about this podcast if you enjoyed it and share the world of Art Curious with just one person in your life because every download and subscribe helps. So thank you. As you may already know, we are on a little break between seasons, but we will be back this fall with our 12th season. And in the meantime, we are still dropping our weekly news roundups and bonus episodes right here into this feed. So stick with us and subscribe to get more of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.